Monday, July 7th. Mike Gavaroli, halfway through the year, uh, 2014. I'm Ken Rimple. Jamie Allen from TypeSafe. And Joel Confino. Jamie Allen from TypeSafe. How's it going? Uh, going really, really well, actually. We're... Uh, you know, busier than I ever thought we could be and just trying to keep up with all the things that are happening in the world of, you know, Scala, Aka, and Play. Awesome. So we have a number of uh, topics. Uh, we're we're going to throw a few questions at you and they actually kind of work out discussion-wise. Uh, there won't be any major crazy questions like, you know, why didn't you write the whole thing and see? But uh, let's start out with the first one. So um, Aperture is going bye-bye. Um, I'm a photography buff, and I saw this, and I went, what? But uh, in Apple's goal in kind of, I guess, kind of reconsolidating their software, they've moved on to uh, Sunset Aperture and to move a lot of its features into a new photo library tool. And I just thought of um, all the changes they were making to their video editing tools and other stuff, too. Uh, but the goal is th uh, that they're going to have, what's the next version of, of OS X coming out? It's another wave, isn't it? Yosemite. Yosemite. It's not a wave. It's apparently Yosemite Sam. Um, but anyway, so they're going to uh, make sure they do a patch that it's uh, usable by Yosemite. And so that way it's got some decent life left to it. But it looks like we're changing tools, changing Pro Tools without it being Pro Tools itself. So figured if you're a photographer, you should probably have to look at that. Another options, um, I was looking at, for example, um, and using Lightroom from Adobe, which is a pretty decent tool. And there's a number of open source tools as well out there. Um, also Capture One, which is a really old raw conversion tool. But that was kind of interesting. Joel, have you ever used Aperture? I have, and I've been considering moving to it. Uh, it's a little disappointing, but I guess they haven't updated it in a while. I guess Apple's really doubling down on consumer and not Pro. You know, with other other moves that they've been making, they bought Beats and all this other stuff. It seems definitely like they may be leaving some of their uh, you know pro roots. Hmm. Yeah, I know. They're, they're, I mean, I think Final Cut would be a big problem if they got rid of that. That's just such a mainstay of video editing out there. But uh, so I don't think you'll see that go away anytime soon. I know they still have Logic too. But anyway, if you're a photographer, you know, take a look at that, and we'll put a link to the show notes to see what their their options are. They're actually going to help people convert to Lightroom. Um, they have a support line or something like that that they're going to provide to help people migrate their libraries over. So maybe you'll see all that library metadata become portable. That would be kind of nice, you know. Gene, what do you use for your photo stuff? Just any, uh, you and I photo person? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I don't take pictures. Ah, that's probably not a bad thing. Cause <laughs> I have three young kids, so I'm just going to forget about these years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that's probably, you're probably more sane that way. Yeah. All right. Um, Google, I, I know you're going to have something to say about this, I think, uh, as we were talking before the show, Jamie. But uh, Google is now claiming uh, MapReduce, forget it. They stopped using it a long time ago. Um, and now they're using some other large-scale uh, thing called Cloud Dataflow. Have you ever heard of Cloud Dataflow? Uh, no, no, I haven't really. But, I mean, it's not hard to get a grasp of what they're talking about as far as the idea of being able to stage data through a pipeline mm -hmm. and guarantee that the you know data is going to be handled a certain way before it moves to the next section of the pipeline, uh, but all in memory because, let's face it, memory is cheap now, and you don't necessarily need to be distributed on disk. 
Right. Now, I mean, we were talking earlier about, uh, was it Spray, uh, Spark? Spark. And so that's a new kind of initiative on top of, or maybe not new, but it's an initiative on top of uh, Scala and ACA. What, what is Spark and how does that kind of relate to this? Is it the same kind of concept of everything being in memory? And Yeah, exactly. Instead of having, um, you know, this, this latent and uh, old school architecture based on the Hadoop MapReduce world, uh, where everything's on disk and you're going to, you know, have a job that's going to run and it's going to do some parsing of the data, or not parsing, but, you know, munching of the data and come up with analytics based upon a certain algorithm that you've come up with. Uh, this is going to be a case where you're getting information a lot quicker. With uh, MapReduce, you'd run a job and hours later you'd have an answer. And yet with uh, Spark, you're able to run something that's happening in memory um, and get an answer really, really quickly and even have ad hoc queries from sort of a, a REPL you know, a, a, an interpreter that you just type in your queries to and get live answers within minutes. Wow. Yeah, it looks like they're going to the same kinds of things here, the, the pipelining and such, as you were mentioning, is streaming in memory. So and Nobody wants answers tomorrow morning. People <laughs> want answers now, and that's really transforming the business. You can see this happening outside in the enterprise as well. People are saying, I want you know, this information quickly in Cloudera, if you're going to help me here, then you're going to have to move away from the MapReduce model. And that's why Cloudera is now supporting Spark, so is MapR. They're all moving in this direction. Hmm. Where do you find out? I'm just out of curiosity. Is it uh, spark.org? Is that what the website is for Spark? No, it's an Apache. Oh, a, a spark.apache.org, that kind of thing. Exactly. Cool. Interesting. And I'm curious what they're using at the basis of uh, of uh, this, this tool here, Cloud Dataflow, but kind of neat. Well, you know, knowing that MapReduce was all built, you know, in the Google infrastructure and Java, mm -hmm. it's highly likely that they were building it on the Java platform as well. That also begs the question, though, and this is a question for people using Spark as well. If you're going to have data that's going to be live and in memory in a JVM, and it's going to be data that's going to be extremely large, it's going to be larger than four gigabytes in heap size, then how are you going to deal with, you know, garbage collection? Now, when you had static data, such as batching data through MapReduce, uh, that wasn't quite the big problem because you had static data sets that were just going to be munched over and then you'd replace the data set and then munch it again. Right. Pre-allocate arrays and things. Yeah. yeah. When you're dealing with Spark or something, you're talking about a data set that's constantly in flux because new changes are coming into those data sets and you're going to have garbage collection. Mm -hmm. So if you've got, you know, a heap in Java that's, I don't know, 100 gigs, <laughs> well, then how are you going to deal with the fact that you have to have a garbage collection strategy that makes sense? And this is one of the trade-offs that still has to happen, right? If you're going to run a JVM such as Hotspot, and you're going to use G1 or, or concurrent mark sweep, then you're still going to have to say that I'm going to have a latency associated with that size of my heap that's going to be changing. Mm -hmm. So there are trade-offs still there. Gotcha. Yeah, I wonder if they use any of the memory map files or the off-heap kind of strategies that some of the, um, you know, other people like uh, Keith Gregory at Chariot have mentioned, have talked about it. He worked with at other companies or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, to Keith is really great with his uh, byte buffer uh, blog post. I mean, I use that as a reference everywhere I go. It's like memory map IO, basically. It, it is. There are, there are other things out there that are super cool in this space. Uh, there's a fellow in the, in the UK named uh, Peter Lawry who has a open source project called Chronicle and uh, another one called OpenHFT. He's in the high-frequency trading place, and he's doing a ton of stuff off-heap. But, of course, if you're doing anything off-heap, that means that you're going to be managing your memory yourself. Mm -hmm. So know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
just don't take it for granted that things are going to be easy whenever you just go off heap. That's not a it's not a panacea. Right, right. There are other options, though. There's like uh, other JVMs such as Azul Zing, which really only gets started as being as far as you know being a value oriented proposition whenever you get above 40 gigabytes in heap space. Heap space. Wow. So it's it's tailored for those giant it's, heaps. Exactly, and being very low latency, very well suited for you know uh, applications that have to be extremely fast. Hmm. All right, cool. Um, hey, speaking of scalability, so I was looking at this. I'm not sure what we want to say about this one, but uh, four modern hardware myths busted, so to speak. Now, this is from. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much this is vetted, but uh, uh, then again, the name Martin Thompson seems to come mind uh, like a really big name in this area, right? You don't know Martin? No. Okay. Well, Peter Lawry and Martin Thompson are all part of the mechanical sympathy clique. Ah, gotcha. And if anybody's looking to understand a little bit about high performance in the Java space, then Martin Thompson, Peter Lawry, uh, Gilton A from Azul Systems, these are all people that you should be watching and listening to. They're all in a Mechanical Sympathy Google group. You can find them on Twitter. Uh, another person is Todd Montgomery from Kazing. Uh, incredibly smart people who are starting to put out some projects that can feed into your architectures now as well, such as uh, they have a new um, binary encoding um, tool called SBE, Simple Binary Encoding. Uh, extremely fast, taking encoding from milliseconds down to nanoseconds oh, wow. on the JVM. Think about that. That's incredible. So he, he goes through four different myths. And the first one is the myth that CPUs are not getting faster. And so one of the things is he's basically saying, you know, the issue really from that is heat. You know, as CPUs get faster, they're basically going to melt if you can't keep them cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's number one. And, you know, there's a couple things in here. So that's one of his tenants. Um, yeah, but this is also, let's, let's think about what he's saying here. It's clock speed not getting faster he's right right but there are other things that are happening that are making your your cpus faster as far as locality of data getting so, things closer to the exactly. and multiple pipelines and things like that right? sandy bridge was a really good example of this where sandy bridge took uh, what they call ddio direct data io access instead of having the data go all the way back to main memory whenever it would come through some socket or port it would go directly to l3 which is a shared cache on a socket right. you know, across all the cores, and therefore it's much quicker, much less latent to get that data down to a core for processing quickly. Gotcha. So then he has a, so yeah, so basically, you know, he comes up and kind of even shows you some of the things you can look at here. So if you use something like Perfstat, uh, which is a, a, a monitoring tool, I guess, um, running it on an Inhalum uh, 2.8 gigahertz, and there's a test called Alice in Wonderland, he notices that it's, you know, processors idle about a third of the time. So even if you sped up the processor a third of that time, it's just not going to get taken up. But on Sandy Bridge, it's even more busy. It's only 25% of the time. So it's more instructions can be fed in during those cycles, yeah. and so you get more done. And also better caching of the instructions that have been run before. Right, right. Uh, number two would be memory provides random access. I know this is a lot of what you were talking about a while back with ring buffers and things like that, where you know keeping memory, keeping variables together that need to be accessed quickly as a pair, right, or as a set. Yeah, that's well. It depends on whether you're talking. It, it depends on whether you're talking about locality of space or loca locality of time. Do I need to access this quickly, or is this something that I'm going to want to be close together so that whenever I do access them, they're um, available without having to pay another cost, right? Right. Um, so 
with memory providing random access, one of the things that I get annoyed about, actually, is that people will say, all right, well, I've got this nice little handy sheet that tells me the cost of latency going back from the core to registers to L1 to L2, L3, main memory, across the network. What they're not talking about, though, is there's a difference between sequential access and random access, right? They're not mm -hmm. the same thing. And sequential access, as long as the data is you know together, is going to be very, very fast. Um, but if you're going to be uh, random access, where you have to pick and choose, okay, I'm grabbing from over here, then I'm grabbing from over there, which, when you think about the Java heap, it almost always is, right? <laughs> you may have a, an array-based collection of integers, right? That's great. You have an array of integers instead of an array of int primitives. If you have an array of integers, those integers are themselves object pointers to somewhere in the heap, and it may not be contiguous. Right. So what are you going to do about that? You have to think about these costs. Yeah, in his quotes, and, and I'll quote him in the article here, uh, his fourth bullet, software must be written to access memory in a friendly manner or you're starving the CPU. Yeah, you, you have what we call... Uh, um, uh, oh, nuts, I forgot what the term is. <laughs> a, a thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's a stall. It's a stall. Oh, a stall, right, right, okay. Yeah, his examples. On Sandy Bridge, sequentially walking through memory will take you three clocks for level one, uh, 11 clocks for level two, 14 clocks for level three. You can see as you're walking, um, you're, you're paying more and more and more as you're further out. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but then when you go random, look at the difference here. You're going three clocks, eleven clocks. So, yeah. when when you are on core, when you are in a register, when you are in L1 and L2, the cost isn't that big, right? Because this is local to that particular core on a socket. That socket may have four different cores, but the L1 and L2 are specific to that core. Right. When you get up to L3, now you're talking shared across all of the cores on that socket. Main memory, shared across all of the sockets on that machine. Right. So there's going to be more distribution of data depending on what we call the associativity of it, mm -hmm. right? How we're grouping stuff together. Then he goes into myth three, which is hard drives provide random access. And at the very end of it, I like the I like the way he writes this up. A disk is really a big tape that's fast. It's not true random access yep. because basically you've got a bunch of little tiny sectors essentially, or you know contiguous bytes that you read those at a time. You read a big chunk at a time, right? Yeah. Well, it's not like tape though. I mean, tape well, you was know purely mean. sequential. Right. There are ways to jump on disk, but his, his he's point making a bit of a facetious point. But yeah. it's it's not you're not getting a byte yeah. or a even small block, you're getting maybe, you know, uh, a couple hundred kilobytes or something at a time. Yep. So, um, yeah. And so when you have to move, then you've got your latency as well. So interesting things there. And then SSDs providing random access. You have the same kind of things. You've got cells that are located, you know, and you grab everything out of a cell, you write to a cell, and you're, you know, uh, fetching more than you think you are when you're grabbing things. You know, and then think pages, right? Whenever you're going cross page and stuff like that, same mm -hmm. costs. So interesting reading, especially if you're trying to optimize and you're curious about what kinds of things happen at the lower level. Uh, and Mechanical Sympathy, that is a blog itself too, right? It is a blog. Uh, if you go to mechanicalsympathy.blogspot.com, that's Martin's uh, blog for you know all the things that he thinks about. He hasn't been posting to it quite as much lately, but the historical stuff that he has out there, if you're looking to get more performance out of your application, you really need to pay attention to it. Um, but also, if you're uh, looking to do benchmarking, another thing you need to look at is uh, the Java Micro Benchmarking har Harness by Alexei Shipilev from uh, Oracle. And one of the things I'm super excited about is there's Scala support. Sweet. Yeah, so. Very nice. It looks cool. So, so I'll ask you, uh, Jamie and Ken, um, so based on some of the stuff that, that we just talked about, you know, what are the, or is it 
just not something that's that simple to answer. What are the techniques that you could use to, to optimize for those things? Considering when you're working with Java or almost any other high-level language, you're pretty far away from you know, where things are actually physically located in memory. Right. Well, I mean, okay, and I, I don't want to jump up on a soapbox too much here, but <laughs> there is. One, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things for me personally is that I always used to write code saying, I, you know, I, I want to write it, then I want to write it well, then I want to write it fast. And I'm not going to worry about optimizing it until I know it works, right? Mm -hmm. um, and whenever I'm writing in a functional programming style, and by functional programming, I don't mean category theory or anything nutty. I'm just talking about using functions, using immutability, right, mm -hmm. just those two basic concepts, then I know that I'm going to write code that's more likely to be correct up front, right? And therefore, I can focus on, all right, well, I'm, I'm faster writing something that's going to work. And now I can sit down and say, all right, well, if I just pull up Visual VM or mm -hmm. your kit or some sort of tool like that, then I can look and see what parts of my application am I spending most of my time in? Like, what mm -hmm. methods am I spending most of my time in? Where are all the allocations coming from? I want to look at where I'm blocking in particular, what parts of my program are blocking threads. And that typically well, you'll find you know, in database access, especially using right. JDBC drivers. Mm -hmm. um, but if there are other parts that are not JDBC drivers that are, have any kind of blocking, any kind of locking that's going on inside of my application, I want to see those. So I want to look at the thread view. I want to look at the, uh, the heap view and find out you know, where these allocations are coming from. And if I know that I'm spending most of my time in these critical sections of code, these, these particular blocks or loops of code, they're going to sit there and execute and do work. Um, those are the parts I want to optimize. Because mm -hmm. the low-hanging fruit is not outside of there. The low-hanging fruit is working inside of the part of the code where 90% of your time is taking place, right? Mm -hmm. So if I can knock my performance down 50% by just avoiding some allocations or um, you know, using a more um, cache-friendly data structure or possibly going with a different looping mechanism, Right, that's going to feed instructions quicker to the instruction cache of the core, then I can avoid stalls and be faster. Mm -hmm. Those are the things I'm personally looking to do. Now, Alexei Shipilov has a really good blog post he put out uh, in the past, um, oh, this week. Um, and if you, it's with a Y actually. <laughs> if you go there and you look at, uh, um, if you look at the way he broke down a Java versus Scala benchmark that was done, and he wasn't taking sides and saying Java is better than Scala, he hates both of them equally. <laughs> Even though he works anybody for who works with anything long enough hates everything. Exactly. He, all, he, all he cares about is that I can write bugs in any language I use. Right? <laughs> it's called Java versus Scala divided That's we fail. Yeah. yeah. And it, look at look down at the very bottom of this uh, article. The very last line says, uh, "Oh, and if you think that part." of part, if you think that part is constructive and boring, and you came here for a language holy war, I do think both Java and Scala suck as programming languages, because they both allow me to write stupid programs with performance problems. There. <laughs> I love Alexi. He's hilarious. Oh, man, that's great. But um, what he's saying here is somebody's writing a benchmark, but not thinking about how the benchmark is supposed to reveal the information they want to show. And that's true for any of us who are out there trying to... Uh, to benchmark the performance of our application. How do we do that in a way that, you know, what is it we're trying to accomplish, and how are we going to do that that masks away all of the details that may be obscuring the truth? So if you read this blog post, it's an excellent, you know, investigative delving into what's really happening inside of this benchmark. Yeah. I'm putting that on our show notes. Yeah, I just uh, Googled that. It looks... Uh... 
Very cool. Hey, this is fun. I like when people do this stuff for, for programmers who are getting started or even for ones that aren't. <laughs> of course, it's always good when they start with Van Gogh. Um, visualizing algorithms. Um, so this is... Mike Bostock is his name, and uh, he has a bunch of different animations for uh, things like uh, noise distribution, um, what's this one here, like uh, best candidate algorithm, for example, for looking at different uh, uh, items. He has um, uniform random sampling, and he visualizes these by showing the dots that are being selected. Uh, and then he goes along and does the same kind of thing with uh, sorting eventually, if I get uh, and shuffling sorts, and uh, he shows a quick sort. Um, pretty neat stuff. So if you're, if you're interested in seeing kind of code in motion, this is really neat. I wonder what his code is that he does to actually do the, uh, the visualization of this stuff. But it's really cool stuff. So, like, you get, you finally get to the sorting where they're doing quick sort, and you can see it kind of, you know, it's busy throwing things to the left, and then whoop, let's reorganize the left, let's move along. It's very, it's very cool. It looks alive. So, uh, you know, and then uh, what's this one? This is a big quick sort here. I guess he breaks it down, and and then uh, there's a link to a, an actual, uh, looks like breakdown of all the different major steps in a sort. So, and that looks like the code right there with SVG. So yeah, you can get the code and play around with this. It's called visualizing algorithms. I don't have much to say about it. Just it's always neat to see, you know, kind of visualization of what's happening in an algorithm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Neat stuff. At least you get to like make your your uh, video card wake up a little bit. Like the random traversal one looks really cool. Anyway. Total waste of time, but hey, won't waste of time. I got those for you. Uh, Go is coming to Android. This is kind of interesting. So the Go language, which seems to be becoming more and more interesting to a lot of developers right now, um, is you know a couple people are starting to switch from Node.js to Go and saying that you know callback hell is driving me crazy. Go gives you some of the same kinds of things, um, and so they're they're looking at Go as an alternative to you know, using uh, Node and JavaScript. Uh, but now um, David Crenshaw of the Go team uh, said that Go will be coming to Android. So, you know, you will have an alternative to Java. Now, I know Scala is on Android too, right? You can, am I right about that? You can compile Scala down, Scala down to Android? Yeah, I mean, let's face it, Dalvik is a JVM of sorts that, you know, can run bytecode, and Scala can be compiled down to bytecode, obviously, so you can do it. It's it's not something that TypeSafe in particular is trying to say everybody should do this. Right. We focus primarily on the back end, and we're not looking to do things that are Android focused and whatnot. But some know, people if do. You, yeah, if people are going to do that, then hey, go nuts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it makes sense that Go is a language that was going to go on on um, on Android because let's face it, there's the affinity from being within the same company. Um, mm -hmm. But let's let's also look at the reality for a developer on Android. If you now don't have to code an Objective C on you know yeah, iPhone, right. which is a huge deal That's for anybody. That's a giant deal. Yeah. You know, people tried to put a happy face on this, but there was none. It was awful. Right. Objective C <laughs> always sucked. Yeah. And now Swift is here, and Swift is a language that has taken a lot of the nice features from other languages and turned into a pretty nice developer experience for a developer. Well, Go is very similar to that, especially if you're somebody with a C background, right? You get memory management, plus you get the ability to write code that is somewhat type safe and you know, easy to construct and not as verbose as Java. So that's all good things from a developer perspective. So yeah, I have to see what they're saying about when, but uh, 
you know, so they linked to a, an, an article he did on, of course, of all things, Google Docs. Yeah. Right? Makes sense. He's from Google. Um, <laughs> Can you so, edit that? <laughs> I think we should let it go. Um, yeah. So during the Go 1.4 cycle, G-O-O-S equals Android. What the heck does that mean to me? I'll be introduced to the Go repository along with C-Go support on Android. So it looks like it's uh, it's coming up in an upcoming release. So. It is, but always be you know cognizant of the fact that going from Java to Go still means that you're going to lose a few things. I mean, Go is where Java was in 1998, 1999, right now, maybe 2001. It's in terms of just the things you can do with it, or no, I mean, more maturity. Okay. Right. Um, and if you're just writing applications that are going to run on an Android phone, maybe that's not quite a big deal. <laughs> but if you're going to give up things like generics, you're going to pay that pain. Ooh, yeah. Okay. I mean, generics are things that we've come to get used to in the Java world. That they're very nice for getting data out of collections and yeah, right, and not screwing <laughs> not up, to cast them down exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so we have a note to that in the show notes. Which, by the way, if you're listening to this and you haven't been there, uh, cherrysolutions.com slash devnews, and this is devnews89. Uh, hey, WebLogic's cool again? I don't know. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I put that out there just to bait you people. Um, so apparently, uh, WebLogic, uh, the Oracle blog, uh, which is uh, affectionately titled Java and Everything, Oracle Middleware, Java EE, Java, Java FX, and Embedded. Um, and so they announced that uh, WebLogic 12.1.3 is out. My God, I remember when it was Tango WebLogic 1. Um, <laughs> Tango, I am. Go code and visual cafe, Ken. Uh, Oh, no! Oh, my God. I mean, no was, one could code in Visual Cafe. That was a little secret. Yeah, Because right. it used up all available memory. Uh, That's right. You booted it up, and it's like, swap. That would be both megabytes. Yeah. <laughs> if that. Um, <laughs> so they're shipping with Java EE 7 support in the container, which if you're a Java EE person, you're going, wow. Wee! Uh, and they're shipping with Docker support, which, you know, okay. Docker, so. Docker's the new hotness. Everything else here sounds horrible. Mm. Glassfish, Jersey. I mean, WebSockets are hot, but WebSockets bound to a server. And I, I hope the implementation isn't. Yeah, well, Tyrus. I, what the hell is Tyrus? I don't know. Oracle's sharpening their swords right now, in case I ever come to the West Coast. Um, Project Tyrus, JS, oh, it's a JSR implementation, Java API for WebSocket. I'm going to back away from this and hit back. Okay. Um, But anyway, so that's what's going on with WebLogic. It's still out there, and they're still releasing software. And most of the people I find are still using tools like WebLogic are doing so because of the deployment and the monitoring that they have and the the tooling that they have for deployment around it. Right. Um, So it's really legacy reasons as they're stuck on these platforms. It's not that they see value in staying on WebSocket or or, or WebLogic and, (laughs) and, and paying the cost for it, certainly. The opinions of the Terriot Dev News are those of the people who are on it. <laughs> Not necessarily those of Terriot Solutions. And, and certainly do not reflect those of Type Safety. <laughs> Yeah, I think WebLogic sucks too. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Use it for years. Glad to see it go on. Well, it's not gone. It's still here. Wait a minute. Do you we still manually have to do EJBC? Or? I don't know. Oh, I you're hurting me so. now. Oh, God. We all remember those days. Uh, questioning the Lambda, Lambda architecture. Golly, we were just talking about this one, too. It's funny. I did not do these while you were in the other room. I know. That's just Even though they're up. certainly in my wheelhouse, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, the Lambda architecture apparently is when you use, and this is this is exactly to the point of some of the stuff we're talking about, is have Hadoop running on a kind of a slower thread and having Storm as another option or some sort of thing like Storm. Um, 
doing reports quicker and then somehow uh, put the data in there and serve it, which means well, you basically have to have two stacks doing the same thing? It's a little a little different from that, actually. What you're, what you're really doing is saying, I'm going to have MapReduce in the background, and it's constantly going to be appending to it all of the events that are taking place in, you know, uh, the real, in real time. Um, while I'm crunching the current set that I have, you know, that could take a while. Yeah. So I'm going to have a real-time aspect that's storm-based that's going to sit there and take data coming in in a streaming fashion and apply the exact same transformations so that I can take the time series old data and aggregate it with the new data to come up with somewhat real-time views of, you know, a holistic real-time and, and old data, you know, munging. Um, but the, the problem here is that you end up with two sets of the exact same logic being applied in two different ways. Right, right. And, you know, at, at LinkedIn, they found that this wasn't really tenable for how they were trying to build their big data processing. Um, so they went in a different direction, and they went much more Kafka and, and a tool called SAMHSA, which is also Apache. Um, you know, interestingly, I have not run across anybody in the field using SAMHSA. Hmm. Uh, it's been out for at least a year as an Apache project, but uh, aside from LinkedIn, nobody's saying, boy, I really want to use SAMHSA. Everybody's moving in the Spark direction. So, um, yeah, I, I think the Lambda architecture was a Band-Aid until somebody could come up with a way to do data, big data real-time in memory fast. And between the two of these, I mean, the one with momentum is Spark. Well, also, like, you could excuse my skepticism, but the article, which actually was from 2011, but the well, article's called... grab that then. Called, called uh, no, this is a Not link this, to yeah, the... This, this was this July is, 2nd, yeah. Yeah, this is, a, sorry, this is a link to the okay. article describing it, but it, they're just describing the land architecture, but it's called How to Beat the Cap Theorem. <laughs> well, excuse my skepticism, right. but yeah. I think the Cap Theorem, consistency, availability, and uh, persistence, it's pretty... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not even close to being something that's truly, uh, you know, yeah. uh, consistent. Yeah. Even if you do get data that's going to reflect a, a real-time view and an old-time view, there's still the latency for displaying to you the aggregated values that you're not capturing. So there's no consistency there. You're just moving, you're shifting the cost of consistency, right? Uh, you're making it more consistent and still available, but you're not making it fully consistent while available. Which is the cap theorem, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I think. If anybody says they can beat the cap theorem, that's like you know solving NP complete algorithm, you know, all that stuff. Like you know, probably not. Yeah, can't can, cannot be done. Yeah. That's probably baiting. Yeah, link bait. Yeah. All right. You also have the OpenSSL uh, project roadmap. What what brought you to put that on there, Joel? Well, <laughs> Besides, uh, well, well, fix this bug, fix that we're, 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 Yeah, I was gonna say we're often prophets of doom. Like you know, here's all the things the NSA is looking at, and here's all the ways that the OpenSSL can be exploited. And so we probably also report on the good news, which is that the OpenSSL project roadmap, which was uh, revised uh, July 1st of this year. They address a lot of things uh, which sound really good, and they give timeframes for those. So they basically, OpenSSL obviously had a couple of exploits, not just the Heartbleed, but there were some found after that. And, you know, kind of really put a light on the project. And I guess due to its incredible, you know, widespread library that's really key, um, you know, they decided to make some changes. I'm not sure how. Like, I don't know if they got, I, I didn't get to read. I've heard some rumors that some companies like IBM and others have thrown some sponsorship money to be able to, you know, fix this, which is admirable if they did. 
but bottom line, in this article, they described some of their problems, which were uh, a huge bug tracking backlog, uh, incomplete or incorrect documentation, excessive library complexity, inconsistent coding style, lack of a code review. That's scary. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no clear release plan, and no clear platform strategy, and no published security strategy. So they were pretty, um, I would say, you know, pretty blunt in their assessment of the fact that there were some major, almost what you would call, you know, basic software engineering um, problems in their process, and they're fixing it, and they're saying how quickly they're fixing it. So managing their uh, bug backlog better, they, they, they have initiated those new processes now. They have a time on each of these. Um, fixing incomplete or incorrect documentation, they've uh, said within a year. Uh, reducing library complexity within a year. Um, certain aspects of it within different things, like reviewing memory management code within six months. Um, in fixing their inconsistent coding style within three months, once they've defined it, or they're gonna define it within three months, and then they're going to uh, start fixing it up to a year. They're gonna start code reviews within three months, and they're going to, are gonna start looking at that, and they're gonna have a code review system in place in six months. They're going to get an external audit whenever that part they have kind of up in the air, I guess, depending on when somebody's willing to do it. So these are the kind of things. They're going to have a release strategy, which within three months, they're going to start to define that so it's consistent. And the platform strategy is essentially moving platform-specific code out of the code base so they don't have all these if-defs everywhere that says, you know, if we're it's on. It's going to fail. <laughs> right, exactly. if, if platform equals right. something, yeah, I don't think we've all seen. What that's not with, fair. It's not fair. Kind of but, Any project you know, that lasts this long is probably going to yeah. have all these issues to right. some degree. Right. They're, 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 you know, they've been around for a while, but but it's good to see that some of this stuff is happening. Yeah, and absolutely. So kudos to OpenSSL, and hopefully they get some more funding to be able to uh, you know complete this important work. Cool. And yes, yeah, so it seems to be improving versus imploding. That's that's impossible. <laughs> Our project's imploding. Have a good day. Um, <laughs> well, hey, it happened with TrueCrypt. That's true, it did. We're done with you guys. Open you know SSL. We're done. It's been we're a done labor developing. of love. You can come up with whatever you guys want because we're sick of you. I mean, it could have happened. You heard about that, right, uh, Jamie? That TrueCrypt just said, you know what? We're, it's too impossible to continue going, so we're just going to shut down. They literally did. Yes. Yeah, that's always fun. Yeah. Fighting the NSA is too hard. <laughs> that's probably what it comes down to. All right, well, and with that, I think we have to go. Um, uh, for the dev news for episode 89, uh, you can check and see our show notes at chariotsolutions.com slash dev news. Subscribe from there. Subscribe from iTunes. And uh, other than that, leave us feedback. We're at TechCast. I'm at K Rimple. Joel, you're at, I always ask you because I don't remember. Uh, Jake and Fino. It's always something I click, so I don't know. And Jake. Jamie, what are you? At Jamie underscore Allen. There we go. If you want to talk about his appearance. you have anything to plug, Jamie? Uh, just that I'm working on a new book called Reactive Design Patterns with the head of the ACA team, Roland Kuhn. Uh, it's in MEAP on MEAP or whatever they call it on uh, Manning. Right. If you go to Manning.com. Oh, it's in MEAP already. That's cool. Yeah, we, we've yeah. got uh, three chapters out, and I'm working on chapter four right now, which will be about testing reactive systems. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah, so that could be a real challenge, too, right? Yes. Yeah, and the feedback so far in the first three chapters has been really good. Uh, in chapter two, I, I did a whole bunch of uh, discussions of tools that you find out there, such as you know using Node.js, using Go, using Erlang, um, using reactive Rx Java from Netflix. Netflix, uh, just a whole bunch of really neat stuff. So um, we're having a lot of fun writing it. Just as a matter of finding the time to do it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I hear also, you. I have downloaded chapter one now. Excellent. 
All right, and that's it. So for the developer news, I'm going to point Jamie first. For the developer news, I'm Ken Ripple. And I'm Jamie Allen. I'm Joel Confino. Make it a good one.